peel everything away, the number one thing that we have to remember for those leaders is that person coming into that door, that your, your person coming into your office. Stop and have remember that they are a human being. Organizations need to be very deliberate in making sure that people's psychological strength and fitness is supported and developed. You are listening to WorkShift, a podcast from the Workers' Compensation Board of Nova Scotia. My name is Stuart McLean. I'm the CEO of the Workers' Compensation Board in Nova Scotia, and you're listening to WorkShift. In our first podcast, we, we heard about Westray. We heard about the difficulty for the first responders. We heard about the difficulty for the families and really trying to process a tragedy, a mining tragedy, where 26 miners lost their lives and really the impact not just on that community, but that's rippled through our province. And here we are 30 years later. And what it leads us into today is an amazing conversation with with some amazing leaders around workplace psychological safety. In particular, we've got guests, Dr. Jackie Kinley, the Atlantic Institute for Resilience. And we also have Corporal Deepak Prasad, who is with the RCMP. They're here today to share perspectives and have a conversation and hopefully have us understand that there's a role for all of us in creating psychologically safe workplaces and people. And this really impacts all Nova Scotians. And uh, there's certainly a role in the workplace for people and for leaders in workplaces to learn from from leaders like Jackie Kinley and from Deepak Prasad. So welcome today to our guests. Welcome, Jackie, and welcome, Deepak. Uh, Thanks, Stuart, and hi, Deepak. Nice to see you. Good morning. First of all, I'll ask a, a question of you, Dr. J- uh, Dr. Kinley. Um, do you agree with the Wall Street Journal's assessment that mental health is the next pandemic? Yeah, I do. And actually, this came out a long time ago, uh, several several years back, talking about the different waves with regards to sort of COVID. And uh, it was sort of felt to be that, that this was going to be the fourth wave, you know, after sort of chronic, you know, illnesses and things surfaced and people went back to their doctor's offices for other health problems, mental health was really felt to be sort of the next big wave. But I think people miss the fact that we were already had an epidemic of mental health problems even before COVID, right? It's it's been a significant problem for a long time and we really haven't equipped people with the resources and the skills that they need to be and stay well. So COVID has really just exacerbated a problem that was already there. Certainly, lots has changed in the pandemic. I mean, we, we we see it every day in the in the the claims that present at workers' compensation. We've had a psychological overlay, but we're seeing certainly an increased incidence of the complexity. We're finding that often the barrier to return to work is yeah. not the physical injury. You know, I like to think when I think about workplace health and safety, I like to kind of think about brain safety. And when you think about um, the change and transition and all the things that people are going through, uh, when people are scared and nervous, um, their their brains get activated, right? Whether we talk about, you know, single incident trauma, Deepak, we can talk about PTSD, but also just stress in general activates people's brains. And when people's brains are activated, they often don't think clearly. They have a lot more accidents, injuries. They can't focus. They can't concentrate well. And 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 they tend to be more reactive. Um, so uh, COVID has really sort of put everybody on high alert. Um, and so um, people are really feeling that. I think people, uh, we didn't realize that we needed these resources before. And now we need to be really deliberate in making sure that people know how to uh, be and stay well, psychologically fit and strong. Okay, great. Deepak, 
How does the RCMP help its officers build and maintain their resilience? When you think of that word, what's it mean for you and how important is it? Oh, I think um, you know resiliency is kind of a, a newer term in in the history of the RCMP. Um, and over my 13 years of being a police officer, when I when I first left the academy, I got no training on on taking care of myself and building resiliency. Uh, even our problem solving model, the first letter is clients. It's always about serving the people, and we never did even assessment on ourselves. Over the last few years, we see us understanding uh, first responder mental health better. So when I started my program in 2019, one of the first things that I was directed to do is to create an integrated wellness strategy which focused and founded on resiliency. So we've modernized our peer support team to be deployable, more trauma-informed. We have a uh, comprehensive chaplaincy program. We uh, Our health services staff that we have an in-house health services unit, they also provide a lot of support using trauma-informed approach. And we also have great partnerships with the uh, OSI clinic here in Nova Scotia for our police employees with WCB. And we're looking at building the capacity when it comes to culturally competent clinicians. So one of the things that we always hear about, um, where I get the call saying, I want to see a psychologist, Deepak, but I don't want to talk to anybody. I want to talk to somebody who's got experience as a police officer. Police officers are unique in its own world. And they want to be able to... uh, to walk into some place where they can be vulnerable, but have some credibility with that person. So, um, there's a lot of different programs. You know, we're we're advancing our our mental health uh, education programs. We're implementing in the next few years the psychological standard for workplace safety, which is excellent. So we're looking at now building policies and programs with a wellness lens from the forefront instead of applying it reactively. That sounds fantastic. It's good. If you were to to apply that lens, is there learnings that you would share? to the general population or to let's say if you're speaking to leaders of companies yeah i've learned a lot and you know previously being in the wellness role i was on the front line and um, you know it's all about relationships it's all about taking care of people and as my job as as a unit supervisor there my job is to make sure that my folks who are coming into the office that their wellness is number one priority um, the public expect that when they receive a call for service from a police officer that that police officer is someone who is professionally trained, healthy, and able to resolve their issues. So my, my advice to any leader and, and anybody in going into a leadership role is take a step back. It's not about the operations. It's about the people. If we are able to take care of our people, operations are, is going to flourish and do amazing stuff. But if our people are coming in and they're struggling and they don't have a psychological safe workplace to be able to receive or, or need the help that they need, it's going to impact operations significantly. Is there anything in your training? So when you go into police academy, whatever you call it for the RCMP, would is there something there at this point uh, in terms of resilience up front? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what we're doing now. I'm, I'm not so proud of what's happened in the past. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've learned and I think the RCMP is, is really, you know, on board and building resiliency. So now when our, our cadets come out of depot, which is uh, different than Home Depot, <laughs> Home Depot is where you get your wood, Home Depot, sorry, depot is where you get your mounties, we always say, uh, jokingly, um, we provide them with road to mental readiness training. Right. And also with the University of Regina, we've actually taken part in a, in a massive PTSD study where we're examining what happens to our recruits when they come into the doors and we we're following them throughout their training career and then also continuing on in following into their work career so we can better respond and build programming that's going to be able to support our employees. 
Well, that sounds great. First responders are not just in policing, they're in, they're in firefighting, they also involve volunteers. Maybe a question for you, Jackie, um, when you look at you know, full-time first responders, you know, Deepak, his team, and, and the, the people in our police forces around the province and, and our firefighters, is there a difference between a full-time uh, person and somebody who's a volunteer in terms of their their requirement for resilience, or do you do you have any comments on that? What what well, it would how how different it can be for people who are volunteering? Well, I guess I would just add a couple things. Um, you know, we actually used to train the firefighters, so uh, we would do the early recruits, um, and 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 the R two MR I think is great. Um, uh, I think that they need um, social and emotional skills also beyond just being able to kind of ground and, and, and because when they come in, you know, PTSD is, is, a, is, a, is problematic and it's a workplace hazard, obviously. It's an, it's an occupational hazard. But a lot of folks come in, um, whether they're full-time or part-time, and uh, they come in with different levels of training and resource and life experience. And so um, we have to really create kind of a solid baseline, I think, for everybody. Um, a lot of people are working outside of scope of practice. I think we need to come in and approach anybody who comes into the workforce, whether they're full or part-time, and, and whether they're you know, sort of a, sitting at a desk or they're out on the front line. Um, everybody needs a, a baseline level of, 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 of uh, training. And so there are things uh, that we can do with everybody. And I think that we need to do with everybody because even the people on the phones, the people taking the calls, not necessarily the people going out, they're stretched and they're hearing things that are very traumatizing. They don't know how to process them. They don't know how to deal with them. And in some ways, they're at greater risk because, uh, you know, they're assumed to be safe uh, because they're not on the front line. But uh, it can be very, very difficult for them. So there are skills that I think everybody needs. Uh, people are people. And uh, as I say, they come in with different levels of, of, of uh, fortitude uh, when they enter the uh, workplace. I think that's that's particularly insightful because... We don't always think of ourselves as being flawed as people. And, you know, that there's a general population. I know we had coffee one time and you shared with me how we're all in a continuum. Mm -hmm. Some people feel amazingly great and once in a while they feel sad. And then at the very other end of the, you, you can't really can't function in some environments. And, uh, you know, there's one of the things that we've seen over the years and right across Canada in the workers' compensation business as I mentioned earlier in my introductory comments, we're seeing that psych overlay. We're seeing people with depression and, and it's not the physical injury that they can't get back to work. It actually becomes something more complicated. And our caseworkers have to have, we'll call it uh, super compassion, super ability to listen and the skill set, even of our teams, we need to give them different skill sets because we don't always have someone like Deepak who has a program, even for our own employees. Like it's, you're trying to build muscle around this, and we're learning as best we can, but I believe we still have a long way to go. Do you yeah, have a comment there? I do think so. Um, I just wanted to build on some of the things, Deepak, that you spoke about earlier about training. Um, you know, um, a couple of things. First of all, I think we need to separate emotion from illness, and, and, and a lot of the training is around illness and how to recognize and see it, and uh, you kind of go where you focus, right? So um, I think it's really important that we start focusing on health and what are healthy behaviors and behavioral health, and when we talk about 
workplace health and safety, I think it's really important to think of different levels of resilience. And so, um, you know, Deepak, you speak really well about how to build team and peer safety and focusing on the individuals, but there's also a personal level. And so uh, it does start with the individual. Everything grows from the inside out, but, um, but we can focus on individuals. We can focus on teams. We can focus on organizations and leadership. And the interventions are different depending on which level you're focusing on. So we can work with individuals to assess them and figure out where their strengths lie and where their growth opportunities are, and then train them, just like going to the gym. You go to the gym, you meet with your fitness you know, uh, coach or trainer, and they, they you know, get you to do some stretches and you take a little stress test, and then they say you need to develop here. Your brain is exactly the same, certain brain circuits that everybody can, it, so it can be personalized. But team resilience is also different. It's like how do you create psychological health and safety on a team? And that's more behavioral. And so that's a really important thing. And then the cultural piece is really philosophy and values and all of those things and modeling that from the top. So it sounds like you've done a great job on each of those levels, but we have to be really explicit and deliberate that what we do at each level is different. And um, so I think there's some really good programs out there. Yeah, you go on. No, this is great. There, uh, you mentioned the individual part. So, you know, that's that's a big part. Yeah. And, um, you know, we try to tell our employees, you know, wellness starts with you first, right? You are the driver of your bus. Uh, we're all in the bus for the ride, but you have to make sure you're okay. So when we start breaking down that and saying, what are you doing individually? What are you doing with your family? So you're kind of going from yourself to home to work. It's it's a building block to kind of move forward. And um, you know, I've seen in my experience with everything that's happened in the past couple of years, units that promote individual resiliency building, units that are supportive both at work in the detachment and outside the detachment, those are the units that have a good morale, good high uh, performance. Um, but most importantly, that's where they have high wellness within employees. Mm-hmm. So it, it's unique. And you mentioned um, the, the police dispatchers or the dispatcher professions earlier. Um, you know, I, I did five years of that in, in Vancouver as a police dispatcher. And I learned it's so unique because it's a sedentary job. But when that call's done, the next call is waiting for you. So you're continuously answering calls. So to even have that moment of let me reset myself is not there or not available to us. Um, so those professionals who keep us safe, uh, keep the police and the first responders safe, they're you know they're either continuously dealing with calls from the public and they're answering calls and ascertaining information, or on the flip side, they're ensuring that we're safe going to calls. So it's really unique. Now, Jackie, the one thing I mentioned wanted to ask you is that my, a lot of my service frontline was in rural Nova Scotia, and I worked very heavily with with volunteer uh, firefighting organizations. And I think that one of the things is that when you're a volunteer a firefighter, which, you know, they're professional 110%. They're, they're, they're the best thing out there. Departments have to do a little bit more in building resiliency, but, you know, they're always struggling with financial issues and they're always struggling. You know, they have to meet so many requirements to do firefighter training to keep more the with less. Yeah, more with less. That's, and that's a common term we hear in first responder world. It's more with less and all these pressures. So they work full time, they get a call, they go to a call and they come home and you know, they call and they do some stuff that, you know, you're kind of like, what, what is what's happening? Right. So I think we have to remember that, too, that we're a very unique province. And as we leave Halifax and go more rural and into other places of the province, we, we have those volunteers who are just so passionate about what they do. 
and they want to serve their communities and they're doing it from the side of their desk, we got to make sure we have the proper support yeah. for them as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of those uh, individuals come in um, with, a, with even maybe a misconception that, you know, they want to help people. They want to be, and I don't think they uh, properly understand, maybe, maybe some do, obviously, but I think a lot don't, um, the risk, the occupational hazard. And so I do think that prepping people, and even though it's rural, you know, people talk about costs and things. I do think that there's a lot we can do, um, you know, through technology and through education. I mean, it starts with awareness. When we train people, you know, uh, we don't actually get to skills <laughs> until, you know, a little down the road. It's, it's that mental shift, uh, you know, that, that, that this is a self-management program, right? Is that, you know, nobody makes you go to the gym, nobody makes you work out. And to become psychologically fit and strong, you have to do things. It's not just an outcome. It's a, it's, it, it, and, and it's not just a capacity of a system, individual or team or whatever, but it's an actual process. So to be resilient, you have to do things. And so I think it's, it's really important important to teach people that is that in some ways, you know, we have much more control over our mental health than we think. You know, people often think they don't have control and that, you know, that things happen to them and certainly things happen to us. But when we're under stress, it's more about how do we react and respond and control our reaction and temper it and moderate it. And so I think there's a lot of things that people can do and there's a lot of ed education uh, that we can do for people to teach them. And, and, and in some ways, um, you know, these are these are uh, skills that people often don't think about, right? Um, you know, self-compassion, empathy, boundaries, all of these things. Um, it, you know, they need to develop those skills. And, and um, yeah, and they can. And they're not, uh, I'm, I'm not going to say they're not hard to develop because it, it is hard work. Uh, but the more they do them, the easier life gets. <laughs> yeah, right? and it's so, so cool you're talking about this. So, you know, you're, you're bringing the lens of the clinician lens uh, yeah. as a professional. I'm saying as a first responder lens. And when it comes to building resiliency individually, it's not challenging. It's not hard. I, I'll talk to members all the time and say, listen, all this is, is it's pretty simple. First of all, let's get a, let's get back in the gym or let's do something physical, right? Let's create some good boundaries. So, you know, when you're off shift, your cell phone is off. Leave it at the office for all I care. But, you know, have that break. Um, you know, allow yourself to 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 be vulnerable and and also take care of what's going into your body. So, you know, make sure that you're drinking good water, make sure you're eating good food. And those are the the, the, the first things to start. And when you, when you feel good a little bit, then the next step is let's get into talking to a clinician. And I encourage all of our people, like, like we have family doctors, we should also have clinicians. So we should build a relationship beforehand. So when something does happen, just like how we'd go to a doctor, you go to a, a clinician. I, I, I would challenge that a bit. Instead of a clinician, which is a medical model, make sure that people have a resilience coach, which is a little bit different. Because you see already, as soon as it's a clinician, you're slipping into a medical model. And so I think it's really important to separate emotions from illness. Because in addition to all of those other things is that emotions will come up. People will get angry. People will get sad. People will get scared. And so much of the challenge I think that individuals have is, or, or, or that we have, is that we pathologize emotion. And emotions are healthy and they're natural and they're the spice of life. We want to be able to. If we're angry, it's because our values have been compromised in some way. We need to take action. It's hope, perseverance. Sadness is loss. Fear is 
prepare, get ready. So I think it's really important that this emotional intelligence piece really does need to be built into that. And that can be really hard because being vulnerable with your emotions, this is where I was talking about the difference between single trauma and complex. We all come in with a backstory. We all come in with baggage. We all come in with a history. So being vulnerable can be really hard. And I liked what you said at the beginning about that's why it needs to be somebody with street cred, needs to be somebody you can see yourself in. So whether it's another first, first, first responder or somebody who's just, you know, authentic and genuine and has the experience, that's where we have to start. And that's where leadership comes in, is that leadership is so important that leaders need to be vulnerable and they need to be present and they need to be able to contain and, and be resilient themselves and understand what it is and what it means. Yeah, that's that's a super pivot to leadership. I love that because, uh, you know, what we see in companies, and I, and I always think about the metaphorical parallel between you know, we talk about health and safety. What's the first thing we think about? We think about personal protective equipment. And if you guys yeah. had a video camera, you'd see Deepak today <laughs> with all his police gear on. He's the coolest person in the in this building for sure. Hey. And he looks great. <laughs> I'm going to say, yeah. I'll, I'll say Jack. I'm going to disagree with you on that. Oh, yeah. I'll say Jackie is, yeah. <laughs> Jackie's pretty cool too. Yeah. Jackie is pretty cool too. But I, I, I would like to put that vest on someday. Yes. <laughs> um, but seri in all seriousness, we think about personal protective equipment, but we don't think about that. So we call it safety culture, right? We say, don't only do something if you can do it safely. That's not usually a choice for a police officer. That's not usually a choice if the building's on fire. Only do something if you can do it safely. It does mean you need to have best practice around all the equipment. You have to have the right attitudes and behaviors and a safety culture. But there's something in the overlay of changing it over to the psychological side. Because when Jackie says, we need to have emotion and we need to have feelings, that's not typically how we think about running into a burning building or, or the, how that can impact you if you have to go back and, you know, if you have the worst thing and you deal with a fatality and, you and you're the first one on site, and now you have to go and you have to decompress from that. Having a safety culture and have a psychological safety culture, yeah. are, are, they're, while they're the same, they're different. I, well, I think of psychological safety almost like a hard hat. You know, like you wouldn't go into a place without a hard hat. So the resilience training, t teaching people in advance, right, what emotions are building their capacity to contain them, to tolerate them, to decompress from them, all of those things, teaching them to stay grounded and focused and, and, and strengthening the relationship that they have with themselves, that fortifies people so that you can actually, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you practice layups over and over and over again. So when you're, you know, in the game, you know, game on, you know, your chances of scoring are a lot higher and your chances of getting injured are less, right? Because you're stronger. It's the same thing, right? You train somebody's brain and that when they go into those situations and those circumstances, you're not going to prevent, you know, uh, traumatic you know, uh, disasters and all of these things that are going to ha ha happen. Suffering's part of life, right? These things are definitely going to happen, but we can mitigate unnecessary suffering. I try to differentiate between the two because if somebody goes in and ends up injured, and that could have been preventable if they had the proper psychological resources going into it, um, you know, then that's a tragedy and that's unnecessary. So for me, I mean, I understand suffering's part of life and, you know, what doesn't kill us, makes us stronger. We'll get through those things. But I don't want people to suffer unnecessarily through things. So how do we prepare them? Yeah. And this is great that you mentioned this to Jackie. So um, something that uh, that I do as a side 
uh, duty is uh, I'm a use of force instructor. So we do a lot of training when it comes to scenario-based training, right? So we're actually physically in there. So when we do our what's called IRD, our immediate action response plan, which is, uh, you know, going into perhaps uh, a, an active shooting situation, when we do the training, you know, it's hard to replicate real life. Yes. But what we do is we we set up our, our teams when we're doing training. We give them simulation guns. The suspect is shooting off simulation rounds and they're feeling impacts and there's smoke and there's fire and there's bells and just preparing them properly. So when the time does call to to call them to that skill set, you know, they don't have they have something to go with from it from it first. So when we talk about psychological safety and building that whole program, it just can't be just one silo. It has to be in every avenue. So, uh, you know, when we revamped, so when we used to do um, just even our, our normal range qualifications, you know, it was very stationary. We had facings and now we're moving. We're, we're using more um, real life scenarios to build our training programs to make our people stronger. And that's so important is we need to kind of break away from that silo thinking of this is what we're going to do here. Yeah. But let's bring in everything and kind of go from there. Well, you know, it's really important what you say because it's not just a cognitive process. It's not just thinking about it and learning that there's actual skills. And you can only learn social and emotional skills in social and emotional settings. Learning is context dependent. So the fact that the simulations and all of those kinds of things, those are fabulous. And the other thing is, is with resilience training in teams and organizations, this is one of the things I often find because we often, we also do it in the private sector, you know, is that, uh, is that, you know, you can't force somebody and you need to stretch people. You need to move them outside of their comfort zone. Building resilience takes work. And so that's where the vulnerability and the safety and having the behavioral contracts and what is psychological safety and how do we create, you know, uh, spaces where, where uh, you know, uh, people can feel safe, right? Um, so, so, so these are all really important is that it is hard work. Uh, it is hard work. There's basics that everybody can do in terms of self-care and stuff, sort of the building blocks, but really strengthening yourself, it, you know, is, is, um, it does take work. Jackie, when I think about what you've just said, and you think about it, resilience as, we'll call it a social issue, because resilience of the population is having an impact, for example, on the healthcare system that we have in Nova Scotia. And, and we know we spend a lot of money treating illness, treating you know, emergencies, treating all the different things that happen to people. But more often than not, you hear about mental health, you hear about all these different challenges. When you think about it as a social issue, what I what I can't help but think about is school systems and and you know, we've been we've tried really hard to to get safety into the school system. So people think, I want two messages, right? I want people to care about safety, like like a mother cares for a child. If you have someone who cares about you and you care about that and you have a culture of caring about each other, things will be better and only doing something if you can do it safely. So those are messages of, of that you would want someone to remember. But in the school system, I'm not sure to what degree we talk about resilience. And I'm just wondering, because I, I, I heard Deepak touch on hydration and, you know, get exercise and have nutrition and be part of a group where you feel proud and you feel like people care about me. People love me. I come to work and I'm proud. I can put that police on my chest and I'm 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 part of a team and we do good. We help people. It's an impactful career. So they feel proud of that. I, I just don't know where it starts, you know, because if it starts when like Deepak is, is backing it up, he's saying, well, it doesn't happen after you have someone who has trauma. We need to get ahead of that. He spoke very eloquently about that. But 
can it go? Can we push this down? Should we be talking to people at younger ages? Is there an opportunity there? Well, well, first of all, I think um, it starts at the top, obviously, you know, and it starts with these kinds of conversations, right? I mean, you have to sort of seed ideas and, and hopefully they'll start to grow, right? So I think as we start to have these conversations and we talk about this shift, you know, teachers need to understand what resilience is. They need to experience it themselves. It truly is an experiential kind of thing, right? And so um, politicians need to be able to, uh, you know, push for these things. They need, you know, courage. So there's a, there are a lot of, um, you know, uh, sort of different levels that need to be involved. It needs to be a concerted effort. But absolutely, you should start as young as we can. We have physical fitness in schools. We should have mental fitness in, in schools. And there's a lot of programs, you know, like Seeds of Empathy. Uh, I think uh, CMHA used to have a, a, a SEEK program, socially and emotionally aware kids. So there are different ways. But the challenge I find has always been is that there's sort of piecemeal efforts and, and instead of a more coordinated. And so that's where, you know, I think having a real solid framework that not only just builds on, on, on sort of, you know, cognitive processes, but emotion and social and, and, and all of those things, like it, it, it needs to be um, a framework that is integrated, holistic, and, and we need to develop a common language, right? And a shared understanding of what's important, why it's important, and then start from the ground up. And there's no reason. The training for kids has to be developmentally appropriate, obviously age appropriate. So the conversations are a little bit different. The curriculum needs to be adjusted a little bit depending on the age, but the, um, but the actual content, right? That's sort of the nuts same. and bolts. It's the same. It's, it's exactly the same. The same. Yeah, that yeah. makes logical sense. Yeah. Deepak, when we um just going to just change things up a little bit, uh, when you have someone who has had a, something go on in their career and they're, they're now, you know, they're having some difficulty. Um, my question is, and this might be, maybe it's a little bit of a difficult question, but it seems to me if you, if, if we define triggers, for example, that like I'll give you an example, and it's probably not a good one, but you have I get back in the police car and now I feel triggered. So I need to find resilience to get back in the police car. Maybe the ultimate destination is not getting back in the police car. And in other words, return to work can look different. Modified duties are things, you know, if you have somebody hurts their arm, well, they try to do something that they might be a trainer or they do they find modified duties. And uh, you know, I just wonder whether voc rehab or even changes in occupation you know, where you have such a severe circumstance that you can be involved in that, you know, it helps people cope and move on. Is, it, is there any work in that regard? Or is that, yeah, is that there's been some, would... quite a bit of work in the last few years. And, uh, you know, I'll just start from the beginning. It, it's kind of unique because we, we hear first responders a lot of time uh, from people who are not first responders. Oh, you know, you knew what you were getting yourself into. You signed up for the job. And that's a very common thing we hear. And, you know, my response is that, you know, my first day on the job, I went to a call and I was like, what am I doing here? This is this is what police officers do because even when I did my ride-alongs pre-joining the RCMP, the calls that we go to are just so unique. It's it's like you're just kind of scratching your head going, okay, well, I'm here now, so how do I help fix this, right? And so what we know is um, over the years as we go to traumatic calls and those, you know, then we have staffing shortages and everything else, it's cumulative. And there's a point where we do have some police officers that need to have 
um, a change from frontline policing perhaps to a different role, um, or they need to transition to a different chapter of their life and they might have to make perhaps medically discharge and go someplace else. So we've seen in this province, the program has been around for a long time. We've really seen a more trauma-informed approach. And when that person is going, okay, maybe, you know what, policing, I'm, maybe my policing chapter is done and I have to move to the next thing. Um, but, you know, at the, the bottom of your mind, you're thinking, well, how am I going to support my family? How am I going to be able to put food on my table? Um, so we have a program where, you know, we have a return to work process. Uh, we have an in-house medical team that helps build a program with a, a, a person's community uh, team. And, you know, they'll try to We'll try different things and see what works. I mean, what's unique about the RCMP is that, you know, here we do a lot of frontline policing, but in Ontario and Quebec, we do a lot of federal type policing, you know, not a lot of interaction with the public. We're dealing very targeted type enforcement. So perhaps something like that might come into play there. But if that doesn't work out or maybe, you know, you're, you're, it's so been so impactful that you just need to perhaps get into a different career path, that we do have programs where we can take care of people during that transitional time and help them, you know, find a new journey and a new chapter of their life. And we always tell people that's a hard decision to make because for a lot of police people, I mean, this is, becomes a part of our entity. And when I was living in Port Hawkesbury, Nanaganish, you know, there was always a police car in my driveway. Um, there was always police officers stopping in for coffee or lunch. And there's always a uniform hanging somewhere, right? It would be odd for people to see me outside of uniform. Um, so it's a big part of yourself. So having that, that next step is, is kind of challenging. But we do have things in place that help. Uh, get you to that next place. And and that's an important thing is to, is to figure, remember that realization. But also we tell people that, you know, if maybe you've served 10 years to the RCMP and, you know, year 11 thinking this is not for me anymore because of whatever's happened to you, and that's fully understandable. You'll never lose your 10 years of service. You still have made a contributing effort into keeping yeah. Canada safe. So um, as we move forward, we're building more. I think you'll see that we, as a lot of our people um you know, they, they leave the RCMP and they go into a different career path. I mean, you know, maybe that they've a uh, skill that they picked up someplace else and they still have the supports in place to, to get them to maintain, maintain them to be healthy. I think, I think what I like about this though, is that there are so many different types of stress. Change transition, leaving a job, stressful, right? When people don't return to work, when they have to make that shift, that's very, very stressful. And there's a grieving process, right? And when people don't grieve, they end up depressed and anxious and angry. You know, we have to be able to move through emotions. And so um, part of your identity, you know, it's so important. People need to have a sense of purpose, have a sense of meaning, feel feel like they're of value, that they contribute. So helping people to transition through that, I think, is really important. I do want to pick up, it's a very fine line, though, between accommodating and over-accommodating. What we don't want, right, this is like the physical fitness, right, is you have an injury, but where's that line? How do you work work the edge, right? Push people enough to try to get them to move forward for those folks that can get back to work, but for those that can't, how do we adjust? I don't think we do a great job working that line. We either push people too far or not enough, right? It's how do we find that edge? Very hard edge to work on, but it's important, right? About, about, um, cause we want to keep people moving forward and growing and, and stretching themselves. Cause that's going to keep them stronger in the long term. And working through loss is, can be very strengthening. It can be very yeah. difficult, but it can be very strengthening too. One thing I think all of us understand is that change is hard. Change is really change hard. Change is hard. Why do we have, in, in companies, why do we have departments 
that are in, in charge of change management. That's right. Because change is hard and it's stressful yeah. and we see people go through it. We've been through a lot of change, certainly at workers' compensation in the last few years. And we saw it for our teams. We saw it that, that just changing systems was incredibly difficult. And you think about the changes we're talking about here. This is really, you know, life and death, so to speak. And, and it's very... It's very uh, important. Well, just I want to add one thing to mm -hmm. that, because as people go through change, what we really need to do is preserve their dignity, right? It's about preserving people's dignity. Because you said at the beginning, Stuart, we're flawed or, you know, people aren't perfect. I say, no, 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 no. We're just human. Yeah. <laughs> there are no perfect people. Nobody likes perfect people, let's be honest, right? There are no perfect people. And so we're just human. We're not flawed. We're just human beings, right? And we're, we're born to develop and grow. This is just part of it. And we have to grow in these ways. We have to grow in these ways because if we don't grow in these ways, then we're gonna then we're gonna be at greater risk of illness and injury. Deepak, um, you know you've been in this business. You've got all kinds of wisdom. Um, if you think about an employer, like because we've got lots of employers who would listen to this this uh, podcast, uh, what would be the piece of advice uh, that you would give them uh, in terms of how that might apply to their companies? And then any final thoughts? So like just you know, whatever you'd like to say. Sure. So uh, the only wisdom or, or expert I am is in napping, really. I'm really good at napping. <laughs> I'm better than you. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, we can challenge you on that there. So, you know, after everything that I've gone through in the last couple of years and my 13 years of service and now having my own team in an operational role, um, if you peel everything away, hmm. the number one thing that we have to remember for those leaders is that person coming into that door, that your, your person coming into your office, stop and have a, remember that they are a human being and that they need to be supported and don't forget their families. Um, it's, a, it's a big part of things. So just take a step back. You know, we see this quite a bit in our detachments. We're so busy trying to fill the schedule or put a body in a police car. Just take a step back. It's about ensuring that the person coming into work is has all the supports in place to be able to, to continue on their stuff. And everything else will, will flourish after that. But um, you know, we we just get so caught up in uh, pressures, financial pressures, administrative pressures, and we lose that vision. So it's about the people. Jackie, what would you say to somebody who is they're responsible for others, they have the privilege of leadership, and you know, how would we help them be successful when it comes to the work that you're doing? Well, I guess I would go back sort of deep back to what you were saying about it starts with the individual. But I guess I would extend it a little bit further to we're all human, and I always say we. We all bleed red, <laughs> you know, we're all human. And so uh, at the center, uh, we're sort of all the same and we all have the same needs. You know, we need to be treated with respect. We need to feel safe. We need to, um, you know, be loved, understood. We need to feel like we fit in and we belong and we have, you know, purpose in our lives. So I think all of those things matter. Above and beyond that, though, I think we need to be very deliberate and organizations need to be very deliberate in making sure that people's psychological strength and fitness is uh, supported and developed and they need training programs in place. Like it's not just going to happen. You can't leave it up to happenstance. You have to be, you know, the same way that we deal with our physical fitness, you know, you have to get out there and do it. And so, you know, um, I, I, I would encourage organizations to start, you know, measuring resilience in individuals, helping to support them. It should be part of their personal development plan in the same way they develop hard skills. These are soft skills, but they're important. And uh, looking at the resilience of teams. And and uh, we're all part of systems, whether it's families or teams, whatever our group is, we're all part of groups. And so behavioral health 
I think is another really important part of that. What are healthy and resilient behaviors? What does resilient behavior look like at an individual level and at a team level? And really, you know, starting to walk the walk, starting to live that. Resilience is in all of us. We have the capacity to to be our best uh, and we have to help bring that out in ourselves and each other. Thank you, Jackie. Today's conversation, wow, there's a coming into the light of uh, issues of mental health and, and extreme issues of PTSD. So I, I want to thank you both for, um, for this conversation today, for advancing the way we all have a chance to think about the challenges before us. You're both extremely passionate about what you do. You're having an impact in your respective organizations, and we thank you for that. As, as a leader in Nova Scotia, I know I'm very grateful that you're in the roles that you're in and, and are contributing to the conversation. There's so much learning here today about creating resilience, the importance of creating resilience, and, and really the importance of all of us who have the ability to make a difference. And you guys are playing a significant role. So thank you very much for today's conversation. And we'll look forward to episode number three next. But this was a lot of fun. And I really enjoyed both of your company today. You are listening to WorkShift, a podcast from the Workers' Compensation Board of Nova Scotia. If you would like to learn more, you can visit worksaferlife.ca.